Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. I'm excited to be um, sharing with you this morning. If I haven't had the honor and privilege to meet you, my name is Jordan and Spencer and I serve alongside each other as lead pastors here at United City. Um, As was mentioned earlier, we are kicking off a new sermon series on the seven I am's of Jesus. But just so we're all tracking together, two weeks ago, we wrapped up our teaching series on what it means to be human. Anybody like that teaching series? Anybody convicted by that teaching series? I was as well. I thought it was a really good um, and honestly meaningful uh, series for the time that we are in in the liturgical church calendar. And there's intentionality behind the timing of this series as well. Last week, we got to celebrate uh, Resurrection Sunday, journeying down the road to Emmaus uh, and kind of paralleling our own journey with Jesus as well. So I thought that that was a great time together. And as we kick off this new series today, I thought it was only fitting to give you a little bit of background on the book of John because these seven I am statements that we're going to be looking at are from the book of John. So um, a couple of details for you here about this book that we're going to be walking through for the next couple of weeks. The first of which is that John is referred to as a theography. Anybody in my house church should be laughing right now because we memorized what a theography was when we journeyed through the book of John. It's a theologically bent biography. So John's writing style and approach is really unique here. Uh, The way John writes has Jesus's divinity at the forefront and his messianic nature or him being the Messiah is sort of in the background. John's gospel is a little more thematic in its approach as as opposed to like chronologically telling the story of Jesus. So the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are referred to as the synoptic gospels. They are chronological, which is different than John. And um, that synoptic side or that synoptic word there just means they're telling the same story, the story of Jesus. Each of those gospel accounts emphasize Jesus as Messiah. And then the divinity or his divine nature is kind of in the background. So we see the difference between what John's doing and maybe what these other three gospel accounts have for us. Um, As I mentioned, last week we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. As as has been mentioned already, we are in the Eastertide season, which is a 50-day season of celebration. It goes from Easter Sunday to Pentecost. And as a pastoral staff, we felt that it was important to orient ourselves around the person of Jesus. Yes, always, but specifically and intentionally during this Eastertide series, uh, excuse me, during this Eastertide season through this series. So the first 15 chapters, Chapters of John hold these seven I am statements that we're going to be exploring together. And these are statements or claims that Jesus is making about himself. Now, I don't know in your um, kind of realm and friend groups or where you're at in society and culture what you may be hearing about Jesus, but where I'm at, I hear a lot of different claims about Jesus. I hear some people call him kind of like a father figure. Some people call him a friend. Others say maybe he's a revolutionary. Maybe he's a rabbi or a teacher. You might see him as your therapist. 
Anybody see Jesus as a therapist? You know, okay, a couple folks are being honest. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe a life coach. I see all these different descriptors of what people think Jesus is, who people think Jesus is. And so what better thing to look at during this Eastertide season than what Jesus actually says about himself, who he claims that he is. Um, I found it interesting just in my study. I started thinking back to all the times I've been in line at the grocery store store. And the few times I have seen magazines with Jesus's face in the checkout line. Has anybody else ever noticed that before? Just me? Gavin, thank you for noticing the magazines in the checkout line. You are awesome. So I have a couple pictures that I wanted to share with you guys of Time Magazine. Look, this is August of 1988. Who was Jesus? Then our next picture here, Life Magazine. Who was he? December of 1994. Life Magazine again, Jesus, who do you say that I am in October of 2012? And I think there's one more yet, March of 2022. So this might have been the one that I saw this year. Jesus in an illustrated life through National Geographic. What I noticed in seeing all of these different pictures, all these uh, magazines that are um, meant to cater to our culture and the needs and desires of our culture, it showed me that there's a history of curiosity among us. For years, there's been this curiosity of who is this man? And I think it's um, shown itself through all these different descriptors that I mentioned earlier. Therapist, teacher, father friend, whatever it may be. So with so much attention over hundreds of years, it only seemed fitting to explore who Jesus is during this Easter tide season. I'm going to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll have it up on the screen as well, but would love for you to turn in your physical Bible in front of you or on your phone to follow along. And as you get there, I'm going to share a little bit of context. So we're in John chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 22. But in the verses prior to this, what has taken place in early, earlier in John chapter 6 is um, the feeding of the 5,000. Anybody heard of that miracle before when Jesus feeds the 5,000? Now, I don't know if you knew, but um, the 5,000 that are referenced there are actually 5,000 men. So I'm going to assume in my own math, there's maybe at least about 15,000 people present when you count women and children. So Jesus is just fed the 5,000. He was out doing this teaching about the kingdom of God. He's out in the middle of nowhere. There's no food nearby. And he demonstrated both his power and his compassion by providing for um, the needs of this group through food um, in feeding these folks. The Jewish people were immediately latched on to Jesus and who he was because of this miracle that he performed. And as Jesus tended to do quite often, after that miracle, he retreated. Um, I think verse 15 actually said Jesus slipped away into the hills by himself. So that's kind of back, a background of what's going on before we dive in, starting in verse 22 here. I just wanted you to know, because it's going to kind of... Um, be necessary to have that information to understand this passage of Scripture. So let's read together, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 6. The next day, the crowd had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake. Uh, excuse me. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that he had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, 
Rabbi, when did you get here? So they went looking for him and they finally found him. And they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, this is the first of the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. So in the passage that I just read, and I know it's a big chunk of verses there, but it tells a story that I think is important for us to be able to follow, is it brings us to this first I am statement that Jesus makes. In that passage, I noticed, at least in the first half of it, three primary questions that the Jewish people are asking. So they find Jesus, and there are three questions at the forefront of their mind in that conversation. The first of which, in verse 25 through 27, is when did you get here? When did you get here? The conversation starts with them asking, when did you get here or where have you been? Like, we have been looking for you. You weren't where you were supposed to be. You weren't with your disciples. Like, we've been searching. It's like, where's Waldo? But it's, where's Jesus? You know what I mean? So that's happening here. The conversation is starting with when you got here, how you got here. But it's almost like Jesus is turning it back around to them. Jesus responds in a way that redirects the intent of their search because it's as if their hearts are searching for the wrong thing. So to read it again, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're looking for me because I just performed a big miracle, but you're looking for me for the wrong reasons. You missed the mark. You're not understanding what I actually was doing and saying back there. St. Augustine has a quote that says, Jesus is scarcely ever sought for Jesus's sake. I want you guys to let that sink in for a second. Jesus is scarcely ever sought for Jesus's sake. So I have a question this morning for myself and for you. Why really do you seek Jesus? Why really do you seek him? Madame Guyan says, what then is our ultimate end? It is to be united with God in divine union forever. 
So no matter how you answer that question of why really you seek Jesus, I'm here to share with you that our ultimate end is to be united with God in divine union forever. We were created for relationship with God. It's in our blood. It's in our bones. No matter what your answer is for why you seek him, if he can fix that thing or do that thing or perform that miracle, no matter what your answer is, you were created for intimate relationship with God. I'm going to look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 to, um, I guess, demonstrate or explain this a little bit more. Verse 26 said, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created in the image of God. We are mankind created in the imago Dei, the image of God. This relationship, this connection between creator and created, it could be, or I would dare to say, it's intended to be a human being's single most satisfying relationship that we will ever experience. Now, whether that's true for you honestly doesn't matter. It is truth. The intention is that our relationship with our creator should be the most single satisfying relationship that our humanness can experience and can encounter. So I want you to kind of think to yourself in your life and where you're at right now, what is the most single satisfying relationship you've experienced? Is it a friend, a roommate, a pet? Y'all know I love Coda. Now that I have a child, is it a kid? Maybe for some of you, it's a spouse. This is a shameless plug for the Meaning of Marriage course that we have coming up. I want you guys to be a part of that. Our culture screams that that spousal relationship is the most important, that erotic, romantic relationship is the most important relationship we'll ever have. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying we were created for a relationship with our creator and that that surpasses all else. That overrides all else. That is the most intimate and satisfying relationship that we can have. In verse 27 of the passage that I read, Jesus has a warning to us. He says, do not work for bread that perishes or do not work for bread that spoils. I came across a new term in my studies that I haven't heard of before. It's called hyper-reality. I think once I explain it, yes, It makes sense, right? Hyper-reality, a false version of reality. So Jesus has given this warning to us, do not work for bread that perishes. Don't work for bread that spoils. Now, I hope you guys have picked up by now, and if not, let me kind of help the conversation here. Jesus isn't just talking about physical bread. 
Yes, he just did a miracle feeding 5,000, I told y'all 15,000 people with physical bread, but there's this metaphorical bread that he's referencing. There's, there's something in the lives of these people and in our lives that we are feeding off of and feasting off of. And Jesus is warning us here, don't work for bread that perishes. Like what actually are you ingesting? So when I came across this term, hyper-reality, a false version of reality, I came to um, terms with the reality that media has aided in this creation of like a false world around us. And if you guys don't believe me, um, go check out my, I only have Facebook, sorry, I'm kind of old and I'm going to count it. Spencer has Instagram. We have these pictures of the cutest six-month-old human being I've ever seen in my life. Her name is Sayla. She is darling. If our pictures don't make you want a child, Something's wrong with you. I'm just putting it out there. She's cute. Got great blue eyes. She didn't get them for me. We could, you know, use a little bit of hair, but otherwise she's perfect. Um, what those pictures don't show you are the countless dirty diapers that have lots of interesting textures and colors to them that we have to change before and after those photos. What those pictures don't show you are, um, well, two nights ago, for example, the fact that she screamed bloody murder from about 7.30 to 11.30 at night. That picture doesn't show that, right? The picture doesn't show that about two weeks ago she brought home the stomach bug from daycare and Spencer and I couldn't eat solids for like a week. Those pictures don't show you the fullness of reality. It's just what I want you to see. I mean, I can post pictures of her diaper later if y'all want me to, but media has aided in this facade. It's like we're a false society pretending to be something that we're not, or we're just not quite honest about the full picture. I've heard about this with dating apps. I don't know if any of you guys have gone on a date from a dating app and you're like looking at your phone and you're looking at your date and you're like... Some's not matching up. <laughs> Whose picture was that? Or was that 10 years ago? You know what I mean? It's a false sense of reality. I see that in lots of different areas. In romance, movies, and novels, there's these erotic pictures painted that union with another human being is beautiful and incredible and always sensational. And sometimes maybe yes a little bit, but really no. Like that's not... <laughs> Thank you for the squeak, Vanilla. <laughs> but that's not reality. That's a false sense of reality. And to be honest with you guys, pornography is the same way. That's not real sex. That's a movie set. That's actors. That's not what it's really like. So in all these areas of our lives, we're buying into this hyper-reality. And what that makes us come to the conclusion of is that we're chasing illusions of bread that don't satisfy us. And they end up just slowly destroying us, eating us away. We're chasing illusions of bread that don't satisfy, and they slowly destroy us. I have a quote from Derwin Gray here, a pastor that I wanted to share. He says, the truth is we have misdirected worship. I'm convinced that every human being is in recovery and being weaned from some form of addiction because of idolatry. Your addiction or mine may not have us eating out of trash cans, but our sin habit is hurting and diminishing God's glory in our lives. I thought that was so good, that we are all in recovery. We are all being weaned. 
You may not see that area of idolatry as an addiction, but it is. I know in our house church, we saw that even throughout the Lenten season to try to remove something that seems simple, seems meaningless. And throughout that 40-day season, that mess was hard because we're addicted even without knowing it. This false sense of reality, we want it so bad. Our addictions might not have us eating out of trash cans. We might not have lost our house and our car and our kids and whatever, but they're still addictions and they're hurting and diminishing God's glory in our lives. It's not his intent. It's not his best for us. So what hyper-reality are you knowingly or unknowingly buying into? What is that for you? Flourishing, church, is not found in the shallow longings that we have. There's a hunger in our hearts that will only find satisfaction in God. I'm going to put that up on the screen. There's a hunger in our hearts that literally will only find satisfaction in God because that's what we were created for. That's what I read back in Genesis, the Imago Dei, that relationship between the created, or the creator and the created, like that is where it's at. That's the only place our hearts will find satisfaction. We're going to keep walking through the text here. Next, looking at verse 28 and 29. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So we see here the Jewish people asking, what should we do? Like, okay, I'm kind of maybe starting to follow you. So like, what's next? What am I supposed to do, right? Like, that's a valid question. Can we all agree? Yes, valid question. So Jesus here takes the conversation in a beautiful direction. I see him, they ask, what must we do? And his response is, the work of God is this. I also love that they are referencing works, plural, and Jesus responds with work singular. So he kind of flips the script. He takes the conversation from something that we are doing to something that God is doing. He changes it from multiple works to one singular work. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That word believe there is the word pistuo. Pistuo is a Greek word here that means believe, but it also means faith or trust. So I'm going to use those three words interchangeably here, belief, faith, and trust around this, um, I guess, statement or response that Jesus has. This word is a present continuous tense, meaning there's an initial moment of trust and belief, but there's also an ongoing element of trust and belief that's taking place here just in this statement, in this word. So I want you guys to follow me in this. This is probably the area of my teaching that was the hardest for me to grasp. And I think we will have further questions about as we go. And that's okay because the Lord can handle our questions. But follow me in this. Faith is a gift that we don't muster up on our own. We don't muster up our faith. We are given the gift of faith. We can access it and choose to utilize that gift, but we don't muster it up on our own. I might, I might do a little example here. Y'all ready? Okay. Spencer and I have described it this way before. What is this? Okay. Y'all are doing good. Just want to make sure you're awake. Okay. I know that this is a chair. I know that the chair is intended for holding someone up. You guys agree? 
We sort of agree. But until I place my life or my back end in this chair, I'm really not trusting my life with the chair. Do you know what I mean? Like I can say the chair is meant to hold me up, but until I sit and until I actively engage the chair, I'm really not following through with it. Does that make sense? So to parallel that with where we're at, um, to say I believe and I have faith, but to not actively engage it means we're actually not placing our life in Jesus's care. We're actually not sitting in the chair. We're just looking at it from across the room saying, Jesus can take care of me. I can trust Jesus. I can believe Jesus, but have we actually sat in him? Have we trusted our life with him? Or are we just making statements from afar saying that is a possibility? <laughs> you know, I, I could diet. I could lose weight. I could go for a marathon run. I could, you know, whatever those things are versus truly believing and trusting actively that it can have it and then sitting in it to see that it does. Sitting in it is the active portion. That is pistuo, sitting in the chair. Now, when I think about faith, my first thought is like, who has the most faith? You know, I'm thinking about quality. I'm thinking about quantity. Like, I want the most faith out of anybody in the room. But that's kind of a weird thought process when I just said that faith was a gift, right? So I think we all have access to the same faith, but how or when we access and utilize it is kind of where our part comes into play. I've heard Martin Luther describe it um, kind of in this unique way, but let's say Spencer and I both are given for free at no cost a big golden bar. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if bar is the right way to put it, but y'all know what I mean, like those square things that you see in the movies, right? So Spencer and I each have one of those. I carry mine around in a paper bag. It's a great place for a golden bar, right? Spencer carries his around in this nice, fancy box that, like, has a lock and key, and it's well-protected like a mini treasure chest. You know what I mean? We both have the golden bar, but we're carrying it around different ways. We're utilizing it and caring for it in different ways, and I see the same thing here with our faith. We both can sit in the chair we have access to the chair. The chair is here for us. It was a free gift. Some of us are like sliding into home plate from across the room. You know what I mean? Like, Jesus, I'm here, cannibal, you know, and landing on the chair. Praise God for your faith. You're like the person with the box, you know, the treasure chest. Like, you're, this, you know where it's at. Some of us are like, Jesus, I hope you will catch me. I'm going. I'm doing it. You know what I mean? Like it's a slow, scared, timid, takes three hours to sit in the chair process, but still the chair carries us. So it's really not about our faith because the chair is going to carry us. And it's a free gift the chair is. Now, whether we choose to slide into home plate or to, you know, take the three hours to finally decide to take the plunge, that's up to us. I think we can all agree in the chair example, it just makes a lot more sense to go and sit down in it. Like, it's easier for everybody. But the Lord is like, I mean, I guess that's up to you if you want to take forever and really have anxiety over it and really, like, pour your heart out. Like, I'm here and I'll listen, but, like, the chair's going to catch you, so <laughs> you can do whatever you want. <laughs> So the only thing I would add to that in this example is that we can pray for increased faith, y'all. Like, 
It's a free gift to us, and we have uh, unlimited access to it, but we can pray to access it better. We can pray to utilize it more. Our faith that we're given is wholly and fully for us, but we determine how much or how little we access it. We're going to keep moving. Verse 30 here. We'll put it up on the screen to walk through it. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? So all through the conversation as Jesus is addressing their questions, they're kind of like, okay, I got a question. Okay, I overcame that question. Like, okay, I'm following you. I'm following you. We get to a point here where they're saying, okay, What we know of our people that took place back in the Exodus where God provided through Moses with this manna, like, what are you going to do? Because you fed a couple people yesterday, but like, you're making some big claims here, son of God. You're making some big claims and we're going to need to see a little bit more. So I want to take us back just briefly to Exodus chapter 16, uh, verse 4, and then we're going to skip over to verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So that's just for context for you to know kind of what they're thinking in the back of their head. When they saw Jesus just feed the five slash 15,000, they're thinking, wow, this kind of is like what I know that Moses did for my people a long time ago. So the Jewish people here are contrasting Moses with Jesus. And they're thinking, okay, like our ancestors got to eat bread right out of heaven. You're making some pretty big claims. So let me just put the example side by side here. So you guys check with me here. Moses fed several hundred thousand people for 40 years, over 40 years, I think. Jesus, yesterday, fed five slash 15,000 once. You know what I mean? Like, look at the two examples. Moses' manna came from heaven. Jesus, in his miracle yesterday, took some kid's lunch and just multiplied it. You know what I mean? Like, the examples are very different here. So they're thinking, like, Moses gave my people long-term provision. It was heaven sent. It was miraculous. You're kind of hinting at God sending you. So, like, we're going to need a little bit more evidence. You're going to need to prove yourself a little bit more for us to really believe you, for us to really sit in the chair, you know? Jesus challenges almost every aspect of their demand for proof in the next couple verses. So we're going to put verse 31 through 33 up on the screen, and we're going to see how his response, um, what his response is, and to like what that means for us today. So our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives light to the world. So at first, they're talking about Moses, and he says, no, it's not Moses, it's my father. And they say, well, Moses, it's who gave. And, And Jesus says, no, 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 it's who gives. Like, this is an ongoing, continuous process here. They're saying it's a bread out of heaven, and he's saying, no, this is the real bread from heaven. For every statement they make, he has a rebuttal. Lastly, The the bread in their example was given to a people in a time. This bread that Jesus says is for the whole world, the whole cosmos. So Jesus is looking at them saying, you thought you wanted Moses part two, but like I have something so much bigger than that. 
this is a terrible example, but in my notes, I, every time I got to this point, I heard in the back of my head, there was a show on MTV in the early 2000s. I don't even remember what it was called. But in the beginning of it, the guy would say, you think you know, but you have no idea. Nobody else is here in the... Aaron, Brittany, anybody? Early 2000s? No? And Brittany's like, yep. So for those of you who weren't born in the early 2000s, it's fine. But that is what Jesus is saying. He doesn't really want me to say that he's following MTV's quotes here. But Jesus is like, you think you know, but you actually have no idea. Like what you're asking for, I meet that need and I um, will provide not just now, but continuously. Like I am what you're searching for. And it's not just a physical manifestation of bread and food. Like I meet all the needs all the time. So verse 34, they say, okay, give us the bread. Like, give it to us always. We want that bread. Verse 35 and 36, I'm going to put up on the screen because this is kind of like the statement we're after. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. So we're going to hit sit here for just a second. Verse 35, I am the bread of life is what Jesus's declaration starts with. I am there. I love the I am. He's saying to whoever seeks me, like I offer myself immediately, like I am. I am here. This claim in itself, I think, assumes that there's nothing in the world that can actually satisfy the way that Jesus can. I am, like I am that I am. There's no other thing that can satisfy. The bread of life. Earlier, I kind of mentioned some proverbial breads of life. Whatever that looks like for you, like what is it that you're looking for satisfaction in? Is it a car? Is it a spouse? Is it a job? Is it a family? Is it the house with the white picket fence? Is it the new jeans? Is it the cool shoes? Like what is it that you're like, if I could just get that thing, right? If I could just get that thing, then I don't have to keep shopping. I don't have to keep searching. I can delete the dating apps. Like, if I could just get that thing, I would be better. What is that proverbial bread of life for you? And just, I want you to know this morning, the satisfaction that you're looking for isn't found in that thing. And if you don't believe me, when you get to the other side of it, you're just going to have something new that you're after. You're going to have something new that your heart longs for. And Jesus here is saying, I am the nourishment and I am the satisfaction that you are looking for. It is in me, it is with me, and it is through me. I am here to meet your needs. I am. This is a little bit of just a side nugget here, but the verb root word for bread actually means to raise up, to lift, to rise, to elevate. So yes, Jesus is the bread, but also like in this Eastertide season, just as bread rises... He will rot. You know what I mean? Like, just the intricacy of detail here was fascinating to me. Even for him to refer to himself as such a, like, minute part of the human experience, like a loaf of bread. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, Lord, you didn't want I am the mansion. I'm the really nice new car. I'm the Tesla. I don't know the new types of cars. (laughs) Tesla's all I know. But, like, the Lord doesn't, like, he goes for bread. And it's because bread is needed for sustaining life. The mansion isn't needed. The Tesla isn't needed. 
the spouse, the job, like those things aren't needed. I am needed. The bread is needed to sustain life. And I think that's why in the wilderness, Moses, um, the Lord used Moses and and provided manna. Like he provided this bready substance. Like he could have provided fried chicken, green beans, corn, you know, potatoes. But no, he provided bread to sustain and to nourish because that's what was needed. And then we look at this idea of life. So Jesus says, I am the bread of what? Of life. So there are two words for life in the scriptures, the first of which is bios, biological life. You're looking at the quantity and the length of time there. And then you have zoe, the quality of life, or what here at United City we often refer to as flourishing. Now, I would dare to say we live in a culture that's actually obsessed with, like, youthfulness. Like, the minute you get old, you actually become irrelevant. You no longer have style. You don't know the cool, um, like, lingo and words and sayings. You don't know the cool music. Like, you are so irrelevant. You're also not attractive. Like, the amount of money and resources and time that we invest in, like, dyeing our hair so the grays don't show. Like, we might not all be there yet, but we're inching towards it. You know, y'all looking in the mirror like, oh, no, calculus did this to me. My kid did this, right? We invest in ways to make ourselves look younger, our skincare products processes and products, injections, whatever it may be, like we try so hard to remain young because youthfulness is of high value. We care deeply about bios life. The quantity and the length of our biological life is at the forefront of who we are and what we do. But I have bad news for you. No matter what, that life is coming to an end. Like no matter what resources you put into your skincare and your outfits, no matter how young you try to portray yourself, that life is coming to an end. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the length of your life. I think he does. I think he wants us to be healthy and have a long life that he has gifted us with, right? To steward it well. But it's not his primary concern. His primary concern is Zoe. He cares about the quality of your life. He cares about your flourishing. In verse 35 here, I may have us put, um, we're going to just that scripture back up on the screen. Yeah, then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever, the original translation means whoever. Like whoever, that is an open invitation. All hearers, all readers are addressed in that statement. They're invited. And he said, come. It's ongoing. It's continual. So how do we get the bread of life? We come. And then we come again, and then we come again. He doesn't give this, like, outline or formula for what that coming has to look like. He just invites us. He extends the invitation to come. There's a quote by Frederick Brunner that I wanted to share. I thought this was so good in terms of this idea of coming to Jesus. We should never add a deeply or utterly or completely or the like to any of Jesus's simple invitational verbs because John's Jesus clearly wants to put the bar here as low as possible. His presence is near as possible. His nourishment is accessible as possible so that we may live as authentically as possible and so that he may reach his highest possible goal with human lives people living with him. We are all he wants. He is all we need. Just come to him. Just trust him. 
that's all, and that's enough. I'd also like to say that as we come, it's not that we have to rid ourselves of all desires. Vania spoke about this a couple weeks ago. It's not that we have to suppress all desires that we have and hold them back to be able to present ourselves in front of Christ. Because if those desires were created by him, then they can be fulfilled through him. If those desires were created by our creator, then they can be fulfilled through our creator. That's something we have to realize. Now, I'm not saying keep those desires and pursue your own proverbial breads of life. No, I'm saying that God can meet those needs, whatever they are, as wild and crazy as they seem. Our creator can meet those desires. So what's the deepest longing of your life this morning, church? John Tyson says that there are three core longings that we all have in this life, to be known, to be valued, and to be included. That every feeling, everything that you're after, every chasing that you have, your your longings, your workings, your people-pleasing, that they all boil down to those three things, to be known, to be valued, and to be included, which tells me that the enemy is working overtime for each of us in this room to feel invisible, worthless, and excluded. So if you feel any of those three things this morning, I want you to know right now that is from the enemy. That is his plan and that is to his desire, but that is not of God. You are known, you are valued, you are included, and that's a biblical reality. That is a biblical reality. You are known. The Lord literally knit you together in your mother's womb. There are scriptures that say that he stores the tears we cry in a bottle. Some of our bottles are bigger than others, but he's storing them. You know what I mean? Like he knows the number of hairs on our head. We are known. We are valued. We are bought with a high price. Last weekend was a reminder of that. The son of Jesus sat on a cross to bear our burdens, to pay the price for us. And lastly, you are included. You are in Christ. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a part of the family of God, an heir of God. You are adopted, you are chosen, and you are wanted. And those are all biblical realities. That is not Jordan just up here trying to give you like an encouraging speech for the day. Like those are in the scriptures. That is truth. So let that truth refute whatever lie the enemy is placing in your heart and mind. I believe, church, that we are malnourished when it comes to Zoe when it comes to quality of life, when it comes to flourishing. I think we're burnout, exhausted, overwhelmed because all of our energy is going towards the bios life, right? Uh, we're trying so hard to keep up. We're trying so hard to paint this picture, this, this hyper-reality, and it's exhausting. That makes us malnourished on the life that really matters, true flourishing. In World War II, or after World War II, the orphans that were left behind because of the war, like war orphans, uh, were placed in families and homes to help care for them. Homes that had love and, and loving parents and safety and security and food. But what researchers and psychologists realize is no matter how um, safe environment we create for these children, they don't trust 
They don't have the faith to believe that there will be um, provision when the next day comes. They are constantly living in a state of anxiety and fear and protection. So these psychologists said, well, let's try something unique. Like, let's give them loaves of bread to sleep with. Let's give them loaves of bread to sleep with. And immediately, like 180 degree change, those war orphans suddenly were able to like relax and experience life again because they believed that the next day they would have bread. They would have food to eat. The provision almost felt promised. You know what I mean? Like they could suddenly take their guard down, let their guard down. And so I'm not saying you need to sleep with bread tonight, guys, but I'm saying that the provision is there and it's been promised. The chair, the faith, the gift, like it, it, Jesus is there. But are you going to continue to live in the anxiety and the fear and the depression and like the constant like uptight, I don't know if I can trust the next day. I don't know if I can trust my creator with my life. I don't know if I'm going to get that job or, or what if I don't get married or what if my spouse leaves me or what if I can't have kids? Like whatever that thing is for you, are you trusting the Lord with it? And what's it going to, like, sleep with bread tonight? I don't know. What, what reminder do you need to know that provision will be there the next day? Provision will be there. You're in an environment where you're cared for, your needs are met, and you will be provided for. So what does it look like to leave the worry and stress, anxiety and fear behind, and actually believe that you're taken care of? It's time we sit in the chair. So is Christ your bread of life? Does he sustain you? Does he nourish you? Does he provide the life-giving satisfaction that he offers? Like, will you take him up on that offering? Because I know he can, but will you let him? Will you rely on him for it? My prayer for you is this, that you will learn to feast on the good news that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And he has come down from heaven to give life to someone just like you. Let's pray together this morning.